Last week, EDS at Union hosted Darnell Moore for a public lecture and a conversation in James Memorial Chapel at Union Theological Seminary. In today's episode of the podcast, we will use the audio from that event and the conversation between Dean Kelly Brown Douglas and Darnell Moore. Moore is an award-winning writer, a leading Black Lives Matter activist, and an advocate for justice and liberation. His recently released spiritual memoir, No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age, Black and Free in America, was a notable book of the year by the New York Times. EDS at Union selected No Ashes in the Fire as our community read. We have planned programming that will explore many of the issues raised in Moore's book, including the intersection of race and sexuality in the church. This conversation, as well as a lecture by Darnell Moore, can also be found on the Union Seminary YouTube channel. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and share this show with your friends and family. And with that, here is Dean Douglas and Darnell Moore at last week's public conversation. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Of course. Thank you for giving of yourself this evening and giving of yourself in this memoir and in all that you do. I want to jump right into some conversation. Okay with you. I'm going to focus on your book a little bit for a minute. You've subtitled this book, Coming of Age, Black and Free. So I want to sit with this subtitle. Now I've heard you say in other talks and interviews that it is really a book about unbecoming, as indeed you've titled one of the chapters of your book. What do you mean by that? How does that notion of unbecoming relate to this notion of coming of age? Mm. So good. Um, such a good question. That's actually also the title of my second book, <laughs> tentatively. Um, but in, in so many ways, I, I do think that our coming to age journey isn't, uh, has as much to do with um, unlearning, mm -hmm. um, sort of untethering ourselves from uh, all of the sort of ideas or, or rules that we have been told we ought to follow. Um, at least for me, I found the route to freedom for me had everything to do with me um, turning all of what I told, I, what I was told I was supposed to be the type of man I was supposed to be, the type of human person I was supposed to be on its head. And I actually think that that is how we get free. In other words, uh, if I commit, if I had committed to living my life in a way that uh, acquiesced to all of the ideas, all of the norms that I was told I needed to follow, I would be caged and I was caged as a queer person attempted to fit myself into a box that was not um, big enough to hold the sort of expansive nature of my sexual expression. Um, I would have been caged as a black person growing up in a certain sort of age and time um, who had received all manner of messages about the type of black boy I was supposed to be. Had I not rejected those ideas, or as I like to say in a less poetic way, given all of those ideas the middle finger, yeah. I, one, would not be here alive. It's in fact my faith 
in the ideas that had been circumscribed, that had been placed on me, I had been socialized into, that had actually been um, why I spent so much of my life toying with the, the, the sort of possibility of not being here. Hmm. And by not being here, I don't mean that poetically. I mean literally not being alive. Um, so if at just that level, if it means that I'm alive because I rejected, failed at, refused, resisted, pushed against, given a middle finger to all those norms, um, and I'm alive to tell the story, that is freedom. So let me stay with that a little bit and relate that to how you talked about your father and how for so long you try to live over and against who you believed your father was and, and, and who he showed himself to be uh, in much of your life and memories of him. What, what did it mean? How did it feel? What was the moment? What, 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 what was the, that sort of transition, if you will, that transformation for you when you began not to live over and against who he was, but to live into who you could become. It was a, it was a very, oh, I'm glad you, that, that is a good word, transition, transformation, because it was a very like stark moment. I actually remember when I finally let go of the, like I, it became clear to me that so much of the sort of energy source that had been fueling my connection to him was anger when the anger was gone and I had to sit with hurt and pain, I really become the eight-year-old boy who, had, who was upset, not really angry, but upset and, and heartbroken. Mm -hmm. Because inside of this 40-plus-year-old person was this eight-year-old boy that was really ever only waiting for his dad to come back and said, I see you. Hmm. Um, so the moment that the anger was gone, I was like, oh, what am I gonna do? Because the thing that was um, grounding, or at least, um, fueling sort of my resistance against him was no longer there. <laughs> it was like the jig was up, you know? And um, also during the writing process, as I'm sort of like having these moments of self-reflection and really um, coming clean with my deep investment in patriarchy, the benefits that I received and even if I had, even after having an analysis or a lens to see how it was working in my life, still better, you know, like, you know, you, you get black, you have feminist dudes who talk a good game that's right. about patriarchy. So we use those words and it's like, you ain't really doing shit to like change, the, you know, this material circumstances in your life are structured such that. The, so I think at that moment, I'm like, you know, we, we, I wrote in the book something along the lines of we are of the same stuff. And how dare I hold him, you, to this sort of um, standard that I was not willing to hold myself to. Mm -hmm. And I was having this, you know, this sort of thought within a larger framework of this sort of justice-oriented movement where we are all talking about justice, and I think we, all, we may mean some fundamentally different things when we say justice. We are in a Me Too movement moment. There's a lot of reckoning happening, uh, movement for black lives. So justice is being thrown out. And in some, for some folk, justice means carcerality. Right. 
And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm having to do the hard work of wrestling with what that means. Like, is that really justice? The justice that I'm imagining, you know, is, you know, an abolitionist future. Or as Ruthie Wilson Gilmore would say in talking about abolition, it's not just a removal of the shit that doesn't work, of the systems that don't work, the things that don't work. It's imagining into being the things that need to go in a place of the stuff that doesn't work. <laughs> so justice for me means living into an abolitionist future where jails are not the final resort or final word for managing violences or things of the heart or matters of harm. That So I guess, I don't know how I got here in this sort of line of thinking, but in so many ways I, I kept thinking, so for the people who have harmed me, what would justice look like? And all I could come, come up with is change of heart, change of mind, a new sort of lens to sort of understand the world and their relationship to it, an ending of the violences that they may have committed. And if I can imagine that for myself, then I certainly would need to sort of practice or hold myself to that vision um, as well. So there's so many places that I want to <laughs> pick up from there, but let me start with this word violence and violences. And your book, opening pages, within the opening pages of this book, you're talking about a period, I guess, five years before you were uh, born. Oh my goodness. And I was, uh, studying that in college, this period you're talking about, where, where, where you're talking about where Horatio Jimenez, or, uh, also known as Rafael Gonzalez in 1971, uh, was murdered, uh, by two police officers and it created, uh, led to the uprisings, uh, in Camden, New Jersey at that time. And, that was a reflection in so many ways of the sort of structural and systemic uh, cultural uh, and complicated realities of violence that also impacted your family and impacted all of the uh, social interactions for not only yourself but for others. And you say in your book that the real tragedy of living with routine acts of violence is the way each act deadens emotions. Can you speak to what it means for violence to deaden emotions? And how were you able to resurrect your emotions again? Um, wow. Um. You know, I'm, I'm often thinking about how we as human persons develop so many coping mechanisms, our ways to sort of deal um, with, with, with what life offers us. So looking back, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, and we, to not feel is a feeling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I'm imagining as a young person and I'm, I reflect on this a lot at some point, it was the only way that I could deal with having lost so many people, all of whom were like under 18 in such, such a quick, short amount of time. Um, and to sort of not feel, or at least to sort of give myself the illusion of non-feeling. Mm -hmm. Help me to deal 
You know, what do you say to a young person? I, I, I battle with this today. What do you say to a young person that can, um, who's been to, I don't know, 10 home-going funeral services before they're 16? And the people that they're burying are, um, haven't, many of them are, haven't been over 18 years old. I mean, I remember one time I lost three friends at one time. They were 16 and 15 in a car accident. Maybe two weeks later, I lost another friend who was shot. He was 16. Uh, maybe a month later after that, you know, a friend who was laying with me on my couch, literally laying on the other end of the couch, you know, with fondling each other's feet, shot dead in the street. Like all of this is happening. And in the same way that trauma blunts emotions, or sort of creates this sort of wall that if we, if we don't um, manage it or attend to it, becomes something of a border, like a strong a stronghold. Um, often it's the case that we develop those walls in order to cope and to deal. And I literally got to the point where I could no longer cry. Hmm. Um, that's not because of a lack of empathy. It's not because of a lack of sort of humanity. It's, it's the result of, um, of the perpetual ever-present sort of face and hand of violence. But how does one heal through that? Um, I can clearly remember, I th like there were moments where, where I cried. And <laughs> like, I, they're so clear to me because they were so rare. Like these were like uh, pivotal moments when I allowed myself um, to be fully human. And let me just say this with black people in particular, and when I'm thinking about the black folk in Camden, you know, like for black people in the context of the US who have had to struggle or at least attempt to sort of attain or um, fall into this category of the human, um, to, to, to be seen as, as fully human, that is to hurt, to feel pain, um, to experience joy, um, is something that, you know, it makes sense to me how, why it is that there, there are struggles around. Yep. Not only being sort of seen as fully human, but what it means to be allowed and allowing ourselves to be, and as black people who are socialized as men. Mm -hmm. So healing for me was like, you know, um, at least therapy. <laughs> um, and coming clean with the fact that uh, so much therapy, also sort of like the critical writings and analysis that had been offered to me that allowed me to understand that so much of what we had experienced in places like Camden were not just because of the lack of virtue present within the people, but so much of the structural violences begat mm -hmm. some of the others. Um, and being cl coming clean with the fact that uh, we have a right to not be okay. There was a moment where I just was like, you know, it's okay to not be okay. Black, and for black people, I don't know if we, we don't have that. Yeah, we don't, well, we don't have the luxury of not being okay, right? <laughs> and black kids don't have the luxury of being kids. Right. Uh, it reminds me as you talk about that and, and being able to cry and being human, it reminds me of a story that Howard Thurman uh, would tell where uh, a little white boy came up to him, he was in his yard doing something, and with a needle and stuck in with the needle and said, I just wanted to see if you all hurt. Mm. 
right? That's this, this whole sense that you aren't human. But by the time people see the violence, you know, as you talk about uh, burying uh, three of your friends in a short period of time, or the violence that uh, by the time it's on the streets and taking lives where people see them, there's violence that people have ignored, mm -hmm. that people don't see. The, the violence of poverty mm -hmm. that, you know, black and brown children are disproportionately subjected to. And I always remember what Fieri, Polo Fieri said, that oppressed people can't initiate violence. Mm. And so when people talk about stopping the violence, mm. they aren't talking about stopping the day-to-day, -day, as you say, that routine violence, the tragedy of that routine violence that truly does blunt the emotion. What, how do we stop that violence? How do we get people to see that violence? What, speak to that. Oh, wow, that's a... <laughs> Remake the world? <laughs> right. um, you know, um, I, I, I often say I, 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 we are so attracted to lies. Yeah. We, we, we love them. Um, so, you know, when I hear that, I, I hear, how do we get people to sort of want to wrestle with, sit with, reckon with the truth? Mm -hmm. And I'm, y'all, I mean, I, I, I like to say I'm hopeful. I really do. Um, and I've really, really like fought myself because I don't want to be like, you know, that person with like a dystopic vision, you know, um, a pessimist. But I often think if I have to work that hard, if I have to work that hard, if I have to just think of new creative ways to use my words, the use of my body for a disruptive act of disruption, if I have to work that hard to get human beings to, feel, to inevitably feel mm -hmm. compassion, empathy, empathic regard for, um, have an analysis for folk other than themselves. That's a, that, that's a horrible state of being. So I, I wrestle with this question. I mean, part of the only thing I can ever say is to tell the truth. And, and, I, and it sounds so trite, but it's like, we do not tell the truth enough. And the only thing that I, I mean, to, to, and, and to do so is to actually love. It is to actually, like, it's an act of love. I would not lie to the thing that I love. I'm telling, you know, I'm, so, but even in our truth telling, I mean, we'll look at the moment that we're in right now. Right. It's precisely because of truth telling on a grander scale and a bunch of other things um, that allowed the pendulum to swing such that you have this impulse to protect what this nation feels like is being taken from them. And you will vote into office. <laughs> that. That. <laughs> 
All you can say is that. I, but you know, right. we voted that into office that's precisely right. out of that's right. these things that we're talking about, right? So, I mean, maybe it's telling, and then, you know, I'm, I'm often thinking about what it means for us to model within the spaces that we have available to us. Like I talked about my family, um, all other ways of being. How do we sort of uh, body into being that abolitionist future that we, that we can only sort of move toward this aspirational yeah. vision? Yeah. Um, well, you know what, even as you talk about- What do about, you think about that? Well, no. Well, he's, when you talk about that which this nation voted into office, and we'll get to this other part in my question in a minute, that the majority of white Christian America, by yes. the way, voted for, not just yeah. evangelicals. That, that's the lie that people said. Yes, 80-some percent of white evangelicals voted for that, mm -hmm. but uh, in that vision, right? But so too did 50-some percent of non-evangelical white Protestants and 60 percent of white Catholics. So the majority of white Christian America right. voted for this. So let's first tell the truth about that. But I think as you speak about this vision that was voted into office and this man uh, that was voted into office, we need to reckon with the truth that he, em he embodies of who this nation is. Mm -hmm because he's speaking a truth. He embodies a truth of who we are, and until we reckon with that, then we won't be able to move toward, right, this place where violence is not enacted on people simply because of who they are. Yes. So that, that, that's, that's my interest. I'm gonna talk about another kind of violence that you talk about in your book, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna start by calling some names. Dana Martin, Jazlyn Ware, Ashante Carmen, Claire Legato, Malaysia Booker, Michelle Tamika Washington, Paris Cameron, Chanel Lindsay, Chanel Skurlock, Zoe Spears, Brooklyn Lindsay, Denalis Berries Stuckey, Tracy Single, Marquez Kiki Fontroy, Pebbles Ladine Doy, Jordan Coffer, Bailey Reeves, B. Love Slater, Angelimit Ja Leia Jamar. These are the names of the 19 known transgender persons killed this year, 18 of which are black transgender women, with Jalila Jamar having been murdered just this past Friday in Kansas. Indeed, of the known transgendered people killed this year, 13 have died from gun violence. Of the more than 150 known victims of anti-transgender violence from 2013 to the present, two-thirds of those killed were victims of gun violence. Yet, this is the violence about which we do not speak. 
let alone speaking about the anti-LGBTQ bullying violence that teens like 15-year-old Nigel Shelby are bombarded with on a daily basis that led him to complete suicide. You, in your book, make clear that silence is violent. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful that we, I, I hate that we have to name those names, um, but I I'm, I'm just want to honor the presence of what I call, you know, the congregation of the dead. And, um, So, uh, a big part, a, a big impetus for, for writing this book, and um, Beryl Satter's here, raise your hand. So Beryl's here, and this is my sister, friend, and mentor. Um, when I was had a draft, many drafts of a book, um, so much of what had um, been my guidepost for writing had to do with um, writing a book to honor young people, young queer and trans folk who had been murdered. And, and then I was writing really to, to sort of reckon with the lived experiences of young queer and trans and non-binary folks' lives. And what was really clear to me was that I had been in communities and particularly organizing communities that did a really good job at having uh, single variable political frameworks. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, y'all know what I mean by that. So it's like, I'll show up at the anti-violence march in Newark. But, you know, when we say, oh, you all are about to do this anti-violence march, and you're about to walk out and name folk that have been murdered on these streets, Sakia Gunn's name, a 15-year-old lesbian, needs to be out there. And they say, oh, that's not what we, that's not the work we're doing. Or when, you know, we're, we're, we're in the throes of, of a movement for Black Lives moment and we have these Black Lives Matter shirts on and we're on Twitter and we're talking about the trans sisters who were so brave to join communities of mostly cisgender leaders because, you know, we were all on the microphone. Um, and who had to say, I rarely come to spaces like this because one, I don't feel safe, but I'm here. So we say, you know what, they need to have space to sort of name and to lead. And you have people say that that's not, this is distracting us from the real work of police abuse impacting black men. Or when we're at the sort of pride march, when I'm standing on Christopher Street two years ago, and we're having a great time and I'm in a crowd of mostly white LGBTQIA and, ally, and allied folk who start booing when the Black Lives Matter contingent shows up and disrupts the pride parade. Like, the, the, so I'm, it isn't just that silence is violence. There's a way in which our complicities in this, and I'm, and I'm here, I'm not even talking to the people that, you know, quote unquote, don't know better. I'm really invested and really invested in wrestling with folk who name themselves as a type of progressive, liberal, feminist, whatever, um, whose politics fall flat. Mm -hmm. 
because of their failure to be expansive and open themselves up um, to see uh, the sort of full range of violences impacting all of us. And to not name that, not only to not name what's happening to those individuals, to what ha to, to name to what have happened to them, but to not also name our complicities mm -hmm. in their demise um, is itself a violent act. Let me, before we turn to question and answers, uh, questions, to be honest, let me ask you one more thing. Let's turn, we're in this seminary, let's say something about the church. <laughs> just as I say, just a, just a little, little something, something. So let me ask you <laughs> this, <laughs> right? And, and I always say when we use that term church, it's aspirational because very few of the places which call themselves church are church. But I'm just saying. One black religious leader once said that you can be a whole lot of things in the black church, but Lord, he said, Lord have mercy, don't be gay. Others have described the black church as an open closet. It seems as some of the ways the black church and the various ways in which you interacted with it and talked about it in your church, uh, in your book, that perhaps it was uh, an, an open closet. Furthermore, you said that the black church did more to shore up faulty notions of manhood and patriarchy than push you toward liberation. Yet at the same time, you speak to about the church, churches in which you felt peace. So clearly, as we both know, the black church, it loves and it takes, right? But the black church is a complex, complicated reality. What are we to say, what are you to say about the black church today? especially as we think about the realities of the Nigel Shelby's and the Jalea Jamars of the world, for which the black church is not necessarily a sanctuary. Yes, a few things. One, um, I, I would revise that, I, I, I would do some revision um, if I had a chance in the book to be very clear to talk about black churches. Mm -hmm. Um, or as you say, African, you know, African-American denominational churches, right? Like plural, there's not a monolith. Um, one, because I think what that does, it invis invisibilizes many of the worshiping spaces that are contending against, um, are, are doing worship differently, mm -hmm. are theologizing in more radical ways, in more liberatory ways. Um, and I, I want to acknowledge that. Um, You know, <laughs> oh, well, but here's where, what I think, and you know, I get in trouble for saying this, but as someone who has had a chance to see or at least discern and witness how spirit is moving outside of these church houses, um, <laughs> my sense is that a lot of, a lot of the buildings that exist I hope you hear what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I know a lot of the buildings that exist where people are going because they believe this is where they are finding God. Um, 
when in fact I do believe that the Spirit has, has had to meet so many of us outside of those buildings, um, that that itself is, is a critique yeah. of, of willful, of a, I mean, there's so much to say here. Um, the collusion with this sort of present sort of political ideas, um, the collusion and or love of capitalism and capitalist greed, um, the sort of deeply, deeply neoliberal foundations of so many church practices and theologies. And let me be clear that the black church, if it is having these problems, it is because it exists within a nation, within a context that itself is the problem, right? So I don't want to talk about the black church as if it's an anomaly. It exists in white supremacist heteropatriarchal, heterocap, hetero, cis heteropatriarchy. Cis um, so like it, it exists within that, yeah? And at the same time, let me just say this one thing about like, and I wrote this about this in the book. When we were in, um, when the, that, this Black Lives Matters rally happened, it was 500 or so um, young people, many of whom have, a lot of whom were former seminary grads, some were in seminary, some were, um, were churched but left the church. Um, but I remember we were organized in a worshiping space in St. John's, and I remember people said, I'm not going to go to church. But it was so clear to me that God had met these 500 folk on the streets where they were executing a vision, where they were attempting to sort of articulate and execute a vision of social justice. Um, and in so many ways, doing, living out the gospel, living it out, becoming um, bread for people, literally becoming resource for others, and that is where I found hope that spirit isn't, it isn't that spirit is moving. It's just that you don't have to find it here. Right, that's right. You know, and spirit is moving in, in some of the most phenomenal places. Um, and these places, I think, signal us very, uh, they are a material critique. A material critique of what so many of, uh, of, of not just the black churches and definitely some of them, <laughs> what they are failing, a critique of what they are failing to sort of, um, to adhere to and actualize in terms of their practices. You don't have to apologize. I say amen to that. You don't have to apologize to that, right? Everything that calls itself church ain't church. And so the question becomes, where do you find church? And what you're saying to us is that Church is not necessarily inside those buildings. Church was going on outside where those 500 young people and others are fighting for justice. And in the clubs. In the clubs. In so many places. That's right, right? And so, uh, and then it's up to those places that may think they're church to be to find church mm -hmm. where it is and find God where God is acting. So thank you for that. Are there questions? Um, from the audience. Well, yes. Muhammad.
So you mentioned the book Freedom Dreams earlier tonight. I want to ask, how have your dreams of freedom evolved and changed over your years, and what freedom are you imagining into being today? Muhammad asked the best questions. I've been asking good questions all day. It's so great. Um, how have my freedom dreams evolved? It's the, the sort of center, or at least the, the grounds of my dreams have changed. Um, I have, uh, I've been challenged to think about my own sort of location in the freedom dreams. I often ask crowds, and I ask myself this, who's alive in your freedom dreams? Who's absent? And what I've discovered at, um, after having asked myself that so many times is that the answers have changed. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, um, with the insular nature of my own political formation and my political vision. Um, a lot of the changes that have come from being in community with folk who've allowed me to see, uh, to uh, have access to other ways of being. Um, so in that way, like freedom is, a, the dreams that I have are, are much more expansive and totally con like everything that patriarchy isn't. Everything that, you know, the sort of entrenched forms of anti-blackness and white, uh, the sort of love of white normativity isn't. Everything that sort of visions are, are at least ways of being that are constricted by cis heteropatriarchy isn't. Like, I just want people, I want, for myself to be unfettered in every way possible. And in so many ways, um, as what like I want for other people. Um, lastly, you know, you hear me talk about abolitionism a lot and I, I, I often have to sort of name what I mean by abolitionism. But I often say we don't really have a lot of us time to dream because we're so busy fighting to live in the nightmare that so many people have been bequeathed. Um, that said, when I think about a freedom dream, that freedom dream must be a consequence of an abolitionist project. That is, the, a remaking of the world as we know it, a, a remaking of, a dismantling of those systems and a rebuilding, a reimagining and construction of something that is better than what we have. Can I follow up on that? and? Uh, uh, of Muhammad's question and, and your response makes me think of something that Audre Lorde uh, said and she said that the true focus of revolutionary change if I know this quote is never merely the oppressive situations from which we try to escape but that freeing ourselves from that piece of the oppressor that is inside of us what? And we all wrestle, I wrestle with that. What's, what's that piece of the oppressor that's inside of you that you still wrestle with? Oh my, so many pieces. I know. Um, so many, you know, I, I, I am, Mark Anthony Neal says, he, we were just 
um, in discussion last week, and he, we were talking about toxic masculinity. And he said, you know, in the same way that people will go into AA or NA and say, I'm a recovering dot, dot, dot. He's like, you know, I am a, I am a patriarch in recovery. <laughs> and I was like, that's so smart. That's right. Um, and and uh, all of those things that we laid out, you know, white, cis, hetero, patriarchy, uh, sort of a capitalist, like all of that is like we're, we are socialized into that and I often you know if it take if it took me all of these years to hate the color of my skin the size of my nose the shape of my lips the movement of my body the ways that I love um, all these ideas that are you know structured by uh, anti-black racism and sexism and and queer antagonism if it took, like I would I, I put my faith in those ideas then it takes that much longer for me to free myself from them. And that is everyday work, every day. You know, I go places and they like, particularly when I'm talking about like feminism, it's so silly. Like, I, you see my shirt, you know? And I'm in these places and I'm talking about feminism and they're like giving me like applause. And I'm like, y'all doing it because like I'm a dude. Yeah, right. And part of what my challenge is is to recognize that because I'm certain that some non-male identified person has said the same exact thing a million times better, much more brilliantly, and y'all sitting up here and you either, you know, attack them or sit there quietly without, I don't deserve applause for doing, for not doing to women what brings them harm. You know, I don't deserve applause for that. So that's my work. Like, my work is analyzing the necks that my feet is on. And that's just part of it. Like, I always say the real work is taking your feet off right. after you figure out that it's on somebody's neck. I got the sign of almost time's up, so I got to ask you the last question. And that is, really, you're in the room now of future religious leaders. <laughs> what do you want them to gain from your story? You say the hardest question for last. That's so hard. Who, I can't end with that. That's like, what do I don't know? Oh, that's so good. What do I want them to leave with? So, you know, I, I talked about confession and radical love. Um, I think future religious, as someone who was a leader in various capacities in the church, one of the main things I struggled with is um, you know, Henry Nowen talks about the wounded healer, but I, I think it's something more precise than that that I'm trying to get at. Um, I think the world is demanding our needs of, of, of people who can un, sort of collar themselves. Do y'all know what I'm, like, in so many ways that collar is like a metaphor. <laughs> it's a cloak. I'm, I'm using this as a metaphor for a cloak. Uh, a metaphor for what it means to hide our authentic selves. And I'm not just talking about, like, the, the sort of stuff at the surface. Um, I, I, and there is a way that, that healers, people who sort of are deemed as healers, are expected to show up and to have everything together. 
um, to have all the answers, to not be recipients of the very messages that they are giving out. <laughs> and, and I really, and, you know, I was, I've been haunted recently specifically by the number of healing uh, healers who have, you know, this story about a person who was running a counseling office at UPenn who just ended his life. And I, so much of this angst comes from this way that we want to sort of put this collar on and let that lead a walk ahead of us. But people need human interaction. They need, they, you know, like the most angelic thing that we can do is to show up as our authentic selves, to show up as people who reckon with self first. And I am certain that we haven't done a good job of that. Um, I feel like so many ways I would love parts of our, our, that the child in us, the wounded parts in us, <laughs> to, to sort of step out of us. And we need to minister to that first. Thank you. books in the back and you may purchase a book and uh, I hope Darnell will graciously sign them. Thank you. <laughs>